Most of my career has been devoted to explaining to policymakers why economics should be applied to trade policy. This is a task at which I have failed spectacularly. <laughs> Nonetheless, the economics of free trade remain compelling. Markets are more efficient than governments at allocating resources, establishing prices, and matching supply with demand. Trade barriers interfere with markets and cause resources to be misallocated. This slows economic growth and reduces living standards. The rhetoric of this campaign has been troubling. Perhaps the last time trade policy became so contentious was in 1930. Then the demand for increased protection was so strong <clears throat> that Congress passed the infamous Smoot-Hawley tariff, which raised import duties to their highest level in over 100 years. Other countries retaliated, and, the, and world trade plunged. Smoot-Hawley generally is credited with serving to deepen and lengthen the Great Depression. The administration of Franklin Roosevelt started to undo the damage. Secretary of State Cordell Hull pushed for passage of the Reciprocal Trade Agreements Act of 1934. He then proceeded to negotiate tariff reductions with a handful of countries, thus laying the groundwork for the market opening negotiations that followed World War II. The General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade was established in 1947. The GATT produced eight successful negotiating rounds. The final one, the Uruguay Round, established the World Trade Organization. It's become more difficult to reach consensus on large multilateral trade deals, and Ambassador Schwab could tell us a lot about that. Instead, bilateral and regional agreements have become the preferred means for accomplishing trade reform. The largest one, the NAFTA, was concluded by Ambassador Cantor. And the second largest one, the Korea-US Free Trade Agreement, was negotiated by Ambassador Schwab. Today's speakers genuinely know what it takes to accomplish trade liberalization. I've asked the ambassadors to give us their perspectives on what could be done to put the United States back on a path toward reform. What have their experiences taught them about steps that potentially could be taken by the White House, USTR, the Congress, and the private sector to rebuild support for liberalization. Frankly, I'm looking forward to hearing what's on their minds. Now to the introductions. Ambassador Susan Schwab is a professor at the University of Maryland School of Public Policy, where she previously served as dean. She also serves as a strategic advisor to the Mayor Brown Law Firm. Susan's first job was as an agricultural negotiator for USTR. Then she spent a couple of years in Tokyo as a trade policy officer at the US Embassy. Next came eight years on the staff of Senator John Danforth from Missouri, followed by a stint as head of the Commerce Department's US and Foreign Commercial Service. Eventually, she found her way to the University of Maryland, where she was president of the foundation. She served as deputy USTR beginning in 2005, and then as US trade representative from 2006 to 2009. Susan earned a BA degree from Williams College, an MA from Stanford, and a PhD in public administration and international business from the George Washington University. I've had the pleasure of calling Susan a friend since the mid-1980s when we both worked in the Senate. 
uh, we collaborated in an effort to revise cargo preference rules on US government food aid shipments. Unfortunately, yes. Um, however, it did give us a shared history of pushing for reform despite adversity. It's a special delight to host her today. Ambassador Mickey Cantor is a partner at Mayor Brown. He served as Secretary of Commerce in 1996 and 1997, but of most interest to us today, he was US Trade Representative from 1993 to 1996. After earning a BA from Vanderbilt, he, he spent four years as a Naval officer. Next, he earned a degree from Georgetown University in law and began working at the Legal Services Corporation, providing assistance to migrant farm workers. From 1976 to 1993, he practiced law in California and was active in democratic politics. I knew of Mickey Cantor as a respected attorney who had served as campaign chairman for Clinton-Gore in 1992. When I heard he'd been nominated to serve as US Trade Representative, my first reaction was, why would they want a labor lawyer in that position? As the politics of NAFTA unfolded during the course of 1993, it became very clear that having a deep understanding of labor issues was a real asset. The NAFTA passed the House in November by a vote of 234 to 200, which included more than 100 Democrats, a rather strong bipartisan showing uh, relative to what Congress has been able to achieve recently. Mickey lives in Los Angeles, so comes to Washington only occasionally. He really must want to be here today because he has to catch a flight tonight back to Los Angeles for a meeting tomorrow. I sent the ambassadors an email last Thursday lamenting that the election had done nothing to clarify the way forward for trade. Mickey's response was brief but wonderful, reflecting the positive attitude of a seasoned trade negotiator. We are all concerned, but need to be hopeful. With that hopeful thought, Mr. Ambassador, the podium is yours. Thank you, Dan. I'm delighted to be with Dan, but also, of course, with my partner, Sue Schwab, who is a delight and, and, and knows more about trade than I ever could even think about. So you're going to learn a lot from Sue, and you'll hear a lot of stories from me. Uh, let me say, uh, when you say, we, you are not only the only one curious about, can you hear me? Only one curious about my name being named USTR, so was I. Uh, I said to President Clinton, then President-elect Clinton, I said, why in the world do you want me to do that? And we were sitting with Ron Brown at the time. He says, well, I want Ron to be the good cop. That fits his personality. And you're going to be the bad cop. That fits your personality. So I didn't know quite how to take that. But uh, uh, I, I, I took the job. And it's the best thing, best job I ever had in my life. Uh, uh, although it comes uh, being a naval officer and then working with farm workers, two very disparate things, you may say, uh, were my other two best jobs in my life uh, for very, very important reasons. I learned a lot in both, and I learned a lot as USTR. Uh, you talked about the economics of trade. Let me start off with something. I, first of all, we're all going to have questions. Uh, uh, 
I'm sure Sue and I and Dan do and all of you do. I, I don't know what's going to happen with trade policy. None of us do. Uh, and we're going to talk about that today and talk about what the possibilities are. Uh, I, I really, what I sent to you is all seriousness. We need to be hopeful. You can't be downbeat. You've got to try to see what we can do about having a trade policy that makes sense. But more important than trade policy, trade agreements are nothing more than building international relations. More important than, to me, the economics of trade, if I might take a little different position than maybe the two of you. Uh, just look where we are in Asia today with TPP seeming to be going down the drain. Uh, I hope it's not true, but it appears that's what's going to happen here. If it does, think about what China is doing today with the free trade agreement in Asia, with their Asia Infrastructure Bank, with their building a new what they call Silk Road, being extremely aggressive on the economic, political, and strategic fronts uh, in, in Asia, including in the East and South China Seas. Are we going to abandon Asia, are we going to give our, at least give our allies the notion that we're abandoning Asia, that we can't be counted upon, not just with trade agreements, with any agreements? Are we going to look like we are withdrawing from what has been, of course, historically uh, a U.S. critical interest? And even more important to us today than I would submit than it has been over the last number of decades. Uh, Asia is the fastest growing economic region in the world. Uh, China is the second largest economy on earth, the second largest military on earth, maybe larger in terms of, of pe people power. Uh, uh, and there's a duopoly in the world, China and the United States. To the degree that strategically, particularly, what China does and doesn't do, how we relate to China, how we operate with them is important to stability and peace uh, in, 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 in Asia and in the world, we need to think about what signals we are sending as we look like we're going to walk away from TPP. What difference does it make economically? I, I, I think the economics of trade are sometimes overstated. Uh, trade agreements are nothing more than setting rules. And let me say something that I won't use the term today. I don't like the term free trade, never have. And I'll tell you why as a footnote, and I'm gonna come back why that fits in. American people believe when you use the term free trade, it means you're giving something away. And frankly, we all know from 1945, 46, after the Second World War on, up until uh, the 60s, we did give away our markets, as we should have in order to build the markets and build the economies of Japan and Europe. Well, the American people came to the conclusion that one, trade wasn't very important to them to begin with, two, we gave away our markets, and three, it must cost jobs, whether or not there was any evidence of that whatsoever. So as we look at trade agreements, the critical importance is not the jobs or the economic impact, because they're small, but the rules you set and what you do with trade in terms of trying to make a, uh, a more, uh, let's say, uh, well-balanced uh, relation between nations economically, try to build each other's economies, try to create, try to create a, a connection and relationship 
that is lasting is much more important. And so what worries me today, as we all sit here, and probably a lot of you as well, is what, what are our, our allies going to think about us in terms of can we be relied upon? What are the next steps? What are they thinking about as China pressures them on China's own free trade agreement, as China believes they can begin to write the rules of trade? Now, since 19, well, since Cordell Hull, my fellow Tennessean, not since then has anyone but the United States really taken the lead, not completely had control of, but taken the lead in writing the rules of trade and writing the rules of international economics. IMF, World Bank, WTO, uh, GATT before that. And so that's where we are. And what worries me is we need to send the correct signals. Now, the administration just being formed and this is not the time to be critical. Here I am sitting as a, I am a partisan Democrat. All of you know it. I've spent my life uh, chairing and running 18 Democratic campaigns. Uh, never got paid for it, Sue, by the way. They owe me a lot of money, <clears throat> at least for those which we won, not, not, not which we lost. But, but trade and, and international economics and international relations are not about partisan politics. They're about the future of our country. And we are interdependent whether we like it or not. We're globalized whether we like it or not. And that's not gonna stop. The only question is, are we gonna have rules or not? And what are the rules going to cover? And who's gonna provide the leadership? And who's gonna write the rules? And so as I sit here today, as I thought about Dan coming over here, said, what is really important here? What is important to me is who's gonna write those rules? Who's gonna provide leadership? How are we going to do it now? Sue's gonna be a lot closer to uh, a lot of her, uh, her colleagues in the Republican Party than certainly I am. By the way, it's the first time I've ever been in the Cato Institute. I am really proud of this. <laughs> I have never been invited here before. And so, and so please, I hope the ceiling doesn't fall, lightning doesn't strike. <laughs> it's a great institution. I hope it survives my one appearance here. Uh, but but I'm delighted to be here. So number one is that. Number two is, as I said, the language of trade. We've got to begin to talk about trade in a way the American people can relate to. We can't talk about it as free trade. We can't talk about it as just economics. We've got to talk about it in a larger, in a larger sense. And we've got to begin to literally, literally educate, not just the American people. Let me start with, our media and journalists know nothing about trade, with some exceptions, very, very few exceptions. Many great members of our Congress, House and Senate, know very, very little about trade, particularly members of my own party. Let me be clear about that. And so when you go in to talk to them about trade, it's always somewhat daunting to try to begin and explain what Dan did in about 45 seconds so clearly how this all started in the 30s with Smoot Hawley, Cordell Hull, uh, 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 the 47 Act, uh, and what happened since then. Every president of the United States, Republican or Democrat, certainly since 1934, has supported rules-based trade. Everyone, everyone vigorously, everyone has been a great proponent and exponent of it, but yet, we go to the Congress today 
And we find, particularly in my party, people who are not only just skeptical, hostile, hostile. And many of them, this is what, you'll love this. The state of California would be the biggest winner with TPP. Agriculture in the state of California, the ports of LA and Long Beach are the two biggest ports in, in, in the Western Hemisphere. 40% of all containers that come into the United States come through those ports. Jobs are connected. TPP would grow those ports even more than they are today. Yet, almost every Democratic member of the California delegation is against TPP. I'd like someone here to explain that to me, because I don't understand it. Uh, I, I love living where I live. I call it living in heaven in Santa Monica, California. All of you ought to try it. It's about as good as it gets. And I love my fellow Californians, but when it comes to trade, I'm just, I, I'm confused as to my, as the leadership of California and where they are and what they're thinking. What's interesting is the governor of California is for trade. Uh, <clears throat> uh, the mayors of the cities who have to deal with jobs directly and are really connected are for trade. The agricultural community all through California is for trade and for trade agreements. But somehow our congressional delegation seems not to get it. And so, therefore, California is also a microcosm of what's happening in our Congress today. So I would start with, let's educate the Congress, let's educate the media even more so about trade, and then we can begin to affect the American people and what they think about it. I think that's critically important. Uh, <clears throat> let me talk a little bit about what I see in the future, or what I, what I see as a necessity in the future. Uh, we have a huge number of trade agreements already on the books. Uh, everything as big as the Uruguay round, uh, which is now, what, uh, 170, how many, 200 countries, whatever, are involved in it now? 60, Yeah, some are already involved in it. Uh, the WTO has worked, especially, by the way, the dispute settlement mechanism has worked very well in the WTO. Uh, it's led to, to, to uh, uh, I think, uh, very considerate and, and, and helpful settlements of trade disputes between nations. It's the only international agreement on the books that has a self-actualizing uh, uh, actual, mechanism uh, to resolve disputes. And you can be sanctioned if you don't adhere to the dictates of the Uruguay Round, which is fascinating. No other international trade agreement or international agreement has that in it. That is an enormous step forward. I would suggest that my friends at the State Department consider that other kinds of agreements that we reach, they be self-enforcing as well. Well, the reason I say that is we need to look at these agreements we have on the books today. They are, some of them are very old. Remember, Carla Hills and, and, and President George H.W. Bush began the, the NAFTA negotiations uh, way back in 1989. Uh, that's 27 years ago. There was no internet. There was no cloud. There was no problem of data transfer. There was no problem of, we had a whole different world we live in. And when we finished NAFTA in 1993 and, and, and the Congress uh, ratified it, none of these things were even discussion points. We've got to go back to these agreements like NAFTA like the Uruguay round, like others, and say, what is it we didn't 
do then because we know now uh, we have, the world is technologically and, and in terms of globalization quite different than it was then. And so my first, my first view, if I were, if somebody asked me what I think the priorities ought to be of the next administration trade would be, one priority would be to look at the agreements and update them. Update NAFTA. I'm not saying amend it or get rid of it or do anything. I'm being very clear. NAFTA has been positive. It's brought our hemisphere, or at least the northern uh, uh, North America together. Mexico has increased its economy exponentially. Canada has done well, as has the United States. Immigration, because of NAFTA now from Mexico, is going the other way. It's net migration to Mexico, not to the United States. So it's been a success, but it's not perfect. No agreement, certainly I ever negotiated, is perfect. They all need to be updated, and that should be a num at least among the one or two or three priorities of the next USTR, Secretary of Commerce, uh, President of the United States, I hope. Now, I say that with a little bit of a twinkle in my eye, because I think if we, be if we took that position as a, as a priority, what we begin to say to this new administration, look, you don't have to throw the baby out with the bathwater. There's some things in these agreements that need to be dealt with. Everyone understands that. None of these are sacrosanct. On the other hand, remember we have relations with other nations. We have economic and political and strategic relations we need to strengthen, not weaken. And these trade agreements can help. So let's look at this in a mature uh, 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 way, in a way that would be befitting uh, a 21st century uh, government uh, that's trying to provide world leadership, and that's what we should be doing. Not withdrawing, not, not uh, uh, bemoaning our fate, not saying that, that everything is, is, is uh, negative. It's not. Uh, we're doing quite well, frankly, and we, ought to do, we can do better. And one way to do it would be to updating these agreements. Uh, let me just say one other thing, and then I'll turn it over to Sue. I hope I haven't gone too long. I'm okay on time. Uh, there are items in trade agreements that need to be enhanced and extended uh, that we have begun to work on over the last number of years that make sense. Uh, trade agreements are not just about tariffs, not just about uh, economics. They're about other things as well, and they can be used in that fashion. Let me just it's an interesting thing about TPP, which no one talks about it. For the first time ever in a trade agreement, we literally have addressed the issue of bribery and corruption as a trade as a trade uh, barrier. We've we've addressed the issue of uh, of, of uh, the movement of capital. Uh, we've addressed uh, uh, other issues of well that that make sense. That all started. This <clears throat> I've got to say that this will be an interesting story for you folks. In, in 1992, when Bill Clinton was running for President of the United States, there was a lot of pressure on him to oppose NAFTA. You can imagine. Uh, 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 Michigan and, and uh, Ohio, even then, were right, on the, right on, the, on, on the balance of going one way or the other. There was a lot of pressure from a lot of very smart political folks that come out against them. 
Uh, you'll ensure you win in Ohio and Michigan. If you ensure you win in Ohio, you'll win the presidency. Bill Clinton did something very interesting, and I think to his credit. He said, nope, nope, that's irresponsible. I'm not going to come out against it, but I am going to say I want agreements on environment and labor in order to sign it. I want those negotiated and done because I think that those, one, we ought to extend trade agreements. They ought to cover other subjects as well, and it will help politically, to be frank. And they did. And we were able to get, by the way, this will shock you, 104 Democrats in the House voted for NAFTA. Let me use that number again. 104 Democrats in the House. We had 234 votes for NAFTA, uh, uh, and 104 of those votes for Democrats. Uh, that seems such a long, long time ago. <laughs> but we need to rebuild that. We need to rebuild that. And I'm criticizing my own political party. We need to begin, as I said, starting to work with members of the House now to talk about how important trade is to them. But it's not just environment and worker rights anymore, uh, and not just corruption. What about regulatory compatibility? Well, we've started to work on that. That's a big deal. That really makes sense economically. Uh, TTIP, which I don't know what the fate of TTIP, but TTIP was working on regulatory compatibility between Europe and the United States. That is a made, would be a major step forward. What about currency manipulation? Now, I'm not like some of my colleagues in, in the... There is currency manipulation that goes on in the world. I know that shocks all of you that anyone would say that. And it ought to be addressed. It does adversely affect trade, and we ought to deal with it. And by the way, in TPP, it is addressed the first time. Now, there's no sanctions attached to being a currency manipulator under TPP. That would be the next step. But the fact is, it has taken that small step forward, yet no one, you never see it written about, you never see it talked about, you never, and I hope that maybe Sue and Dan will talk about it, and all of you maybe will feed back on that to me today. Data transfer, protection of intellectual property. Look, when we did intellectual property agreements in the, in the uh, Uruguay round, uh, 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 way back when, God, it seems a long time ago, in 1993 when we finished it on December 22nd, the reason I say that is Bill Clinton called me right after uh, 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 I was, I, I walked over into the Winder building the first time, maybe the first morning, and said, you're going to, I want you to finish your way around by December 21. And I said, what year? And he, he said, don't be a smart aleck. I want you to do it this year by December 21. I've never asked him, by the way, why he picked December 21. I have no earthly idea. And so at midnight on December 21, see, we were sitting there, and I was negotiating with Leon Britton. I said, Leon, I'm in trouble because it's almost December 22nd. And we have got to get this done. I've been told to get it done. He knew he had me at that point, of course. Uh, not really, but he thought he did. But, but the fact is that, that, that that's a long time ago. And our intellectual property agreement in there is old. It needs to be updated. We need to do something about that. And yet no one talks about that very much. Well, those are just a few things I think ought to be part of trade policy. Uh, I really think that we ought to look at TPP, a revised TPP, maybe one that uh, the president-elect and his team can, can look at favorably. And I believe, this is just me, maybe no one will agree, we ought to invite China in. 
We ought to say to China, you know what? Your infrastructure bank in Asia is a pretty good idea. We'd like to join that. We would like you to come into TPP. And I say that for a number of reasons, not the least of which is we need to engage China at every level in order to secure peace and stability in Asia. And we haven't done a very good job of it. And we need to look at that now, not surround China, not threaten China, not look at putting more military assets in China, but we need to engage China at, at, on, on, in areas where China is interested and so are we, where we can agree and move that relationship forward. There's a duopoly, as I said before, in the world, and it's the U.S. and China. And by the way, unless we can enhance that relationship, we're going to find ourselves in a, in a whole mess of trouble in the years down the road. Thank you all. Thank you all for being here. And by the way, I, kid, I was kidding about the Cato Institute. I really am honored to be here. I'm delighted you're having this kind of session. And uh, uh, I hope that someday you'll invite me back. Dan, thank you very much. Mickey, enjoyed your comments. Um, and Cato, thank you for sponsoring this. Timing is everything. Um, I'm going to take a slightly different tack. I'm, I'm going to sort of outline some basics uh, and then open up for conversation. Um, basics on, on the economics, the trade policy, and the trade politics of the situation that we're in right now. And maybe that takes us to... Uh, uh, where we may want to to go. Uh, and I am speaking for myself, none of my various affiliations that, that Dan mentioned. Let me start with the economic basi basics. Um, open trade is good. It's good for America, no question, but it's not, hasn't been necessarily good for every single solitary American. And uh, if you happen to be one of those who uh, has been negatively impacted, and there are uh, a minority in the economy where that has happened. It doesn't matter how many or how few. If you're one of those and you happen to be in that factory or in that community, it has hurt. That said, um, most of the jobs in those communities, uh, in those factories, haven't been lost to trade. They've been lost to technology. They haven't been lost to trade agreements, haven't been lost to, uh, to unfair trade practices. They've generally been lost to technology changes, productivity enhancements. Uh, globalization may have, have accelerated structural changes in the economy, but global trade hasn't changed the uh, rules of comparative advantage. Uh, and there is very little that, that couldn't be addressed by significantly more robust growth, uh, I would argue, and more flexibility and mobility uh, in the economy. Uh, structural change has been fundamental to the issues in our economy. Uh, if you look at uh, employment associated with manufacturing, an issue that comes up frequently, as distinct from output associated with manufacturing. U.S. manufacturing output, the things that we make, and this goes to Mickey's point about 
about the narrative associated with trade, the fact of the matter is we make things in the United States, lots and lots and lots of things. And we make more things this year than we did 10 years ago and more things 10 years ago than we did 20 years ago or 30 years ago. Manufacturing output in the United States continues to go up. Manufacturing employment in the United States continues to go down. And that is not a trade, trade agreement, unfair trade practice phenomenon. Uh, that is largely a structural phenomenon. Globalization may have accelerated that. Uh, but it has not created that. And, oh, by the way, those jobs aren't necessarily in Mexico or in China. Some of those jobs are in South Carolina, Alabama, Tennessee, Texas. But the vast majority of those jobs don't exist anymore. They're being performed by robots. They're being performed by automation. But again, that doesn't help the folks who lost their jobs. And that really comes back to something we need to address when we talk about the trade policy and, and the trade politics. But if you want to look at, at an analogy here, take a look at the employment situation in agriculture where, oh, 17, 90, 90% 90 of the population was employed in agriculture in this country. Today, it's less than 3%. No one will argue that the US is not globally competitive in agriculture, or that trade agreements have somehow hurt American agriculture. In fact, we are globally competitive. We can outproduce anyone in the world. Our agricultural economy benefits dramatically from trade agreements. Um, as trade negotiators or recovering trade negotiators, um, we can both attest to the fact you spend a whole lot of time fighting to open markets for U.S. agricultural exports. And yet, employment in that sector is minuscule. Uh, in manufacturing, if you look at Japan, you look at Germany, both major manufacturing exporters, their manufacturing employment has gone down as much as ours has in the, in the period, say, 2004 to 2014. Um, it is a structural, it is a structural issue. And, oh, by the way, we need to also be looking at the very fundamentally important role that services plays in our economy and all of the things that Mickey described, um, e-commerce, uh, data, uh, financial services, all of those various aspects of the U.S. economy uh, that are undercounted, underappreciated, and undertreated in trade agreements, certainly multilateral trade agreements, uh, and by a lot of our bilateral and regional trade agreements because they are outdated. So then we move to the trade policy side, the fundamentals there. A good or a better trade policy isn't gonna fix our trade deficit. A bad trade policy or protectionist trade policy uh, could slow U.S. growth. Uh, and oh, by the way, if you have a really bad trade policy, you could trigger a recession or worse. If you focus on trade deals as the problem, and that leads you to focus on trade deals as the solution, or looking at tr fixing, quote, trade deals or uh, trade policy as the solution, you're gonna get diverted away from your real fundamental issues and fundamental solutions, which have to do with economic growth, 
have to do with basic uh, macro factors, have to do with education and skills. We have a fundamental uh, mismatch, skills mismatch, uh, and also mobility, just education, skills, mobility questions, mobility of pensions and retirement funds, uh, retirement capacity, uh, mobility of uh, health care, and, and so on and so forth. But these are not trade policy answers. Another set of trade policy basics to be aware of, and Dan sort of alluded to this, um, U.S. trade policy, and I would argue trade policy around the world, has always differed from economics, classical economics. That's and why there's jobs for people like me. That's why there are jobs for people like us, exactly. Um, and in a way, one could argue that trade policy, um, for those of us who believe that open trade is good, and more liberal trade is good, uh, trade policy is based on a free trade norm, and how far do you have to deviate from that free trade norm in terms of your trade agreements, in terms of your enforcement activities? Uh, a classical economist would tell you you should unilaterally eliminate your trade barriers, not negotiate trade agreements to get those barriers down. Trade negotiators look at it and say, hey, this is a twofer, right? You get your own barriers down, because that's a benefit to your economy, and you're getting somebody else's down at the same time. That helps, too, on the export, on the export side. And on enforcement and rules, a classical economist would say, hey, if somebody else is dumb enough to subsidize my consumption or dump into my market, that's OK. As a trade negotiator, rules are important. Unfair trade practices exist. Those rules need to be enforced. Otherwise, the system is not credible. You need to make sure that the rules don't become an excuse for protectionism that is um, not based on any kind of reality uh, or predatory practices. But there are real fundamental differences between the trade policy side of the equation and the uh, economist side of the equation. And in fact, as Dan noted, in 1934, when the system was set up, it was set up as a, foreign a set of foreign policy tools. That gets us to the trade politics. And, and I'm going to close with some, some basics on the trade politics. First of all, US trade law assumes that Congress has protectionist inclinations and the President of the United States is more free trade oriented. That is how our laws are set up. That the President, the executive, has all of the authority needed to close the US market. Just anything that the executive wants to do, they can figure out a way of doing it. We can get into details if anyone wants to, but believe me, it's pretty much there. To do trade agreements, trade liberalizing agreements, you need congressional permission. The way we're set up, you've got trade promotion authority at the front end, and you've got Congress having to approve trade agreements at the back end. And for those of us who've been in the negotiating business, you spend as much time negotiating with the foreigners as you do, I mean, negotiating with the Congress and constituencies as you do negotiating with foreigners. And that's as it should be 
to the extent that you are supposed to be representing the broader interests of the United States of America, Article I, Section 8 of the Constitution, uh, creates this really interesting bridge between foreign commerce and uh, foreign policy and the executive and, and the Congress. Second, trade politics. You can't fight something with nothing. And so you've got to have a stronger narrative, but you also have to make sure that you've got the education and skills training, you've got the basic economic policies that are going to generate economic growth, that you're going after the real problems, uh, not pretending that it's, it's uh, 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 something that, that, that it isn't. And I think you need to be proactive. Because if you sit on your hands, and we've seen administrations not have trade policies for uh, extended periods. The Obama administration arguably did not have a trade policy for the first couple of years. Uh, the result then is uh, something has to fill that vacuum. And usually what it is is a deterioration of trade policies, not just in the United States, but around the world. First thing that's going to happen here uh, if there is a major infrastructure bill, is exactly the first thing that happened under the Obama administration, is somebody's going to put a uh, Buy America rider on it. And then the decision is, for the Congress and for, who, and for the White House, is do you fight that rider, or do you once again say, well, we're willing to spend $900,000 for every steel job saved, or would we rather have that every $900,000 for every steel job saved allocated to more roads and bridges and more construction jobs? That'll be the first one out of the box, because that was the first one out of the box last time, if there's an infrastructure bill. Stay tuned. Uh, finally, the American people, I'm saying this sort of generically, the American people don't actually care that much. You look at Pew Research polling data of um, before the election from last August, what did they consider to be the highest priorities for the incoming uh, administration, the incoming president? Uh, trade ends up being pretty low down on that list, 31% uh, as, I, as I recall. Um, and if you break down uh, other data in that particular survey, you discover that younger people are much more pro-trade than older people. Um, younger people, in fact, if you look at some of the interesting polling data associated with Bernie Sanders voters, very pro-trade and pro-trade agreements. Sort of an interesting little factoid. So there's hope. So I'm going to stop on that hopeful note. Uh, as Mickey said, if you're a trade negotiator, um, you have to be an optimist or you'd slit your wrists. I'm going to stop right there. Well, thank you. Do, do either of you have comments on what the other has said? I think Mickey's right. I mean, I think from what I, I think, I, I agree, I don't disagree. Sue is more right than I am. <laughs> no, I, as usual, she is, she is so well informed and, and, and it's so well stated. Uh, I, I did want to, let me, I just want to ask you, Sue, it's really interesting, something I wrote down here. 
on enforcement and enforceability in trade agreements, uh, provisions that can be enforced, and the willingness to enforce them. Because of two things, not just credibility. Credibility is a, but just one other thing. Talk a little bit towards uh, 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 the other part of that, that, the misallocation of resources if you don't enforce them. Right. You're an economist, I'm not, I'm just a dumb lawyer. So talk about misallocation of resources and makes enforcement even more important. I think, I think you'd agree with that. It depends on which part of U.S. trade law you're, you're talking about. So, um, you know, you're looking, you're looking at the person who, who co-authored something called Super 301 in the 1988 Trade Act, which at the time was considered like super protectionist and then didn't blow up the world and everything was good and it's amazing how standards change. Um, you've got enforcement on the import side, you've got enforcement on the export side. What you discover when you are in office, as you know, on the export side, um, you really want to solve the problem and you need to be, you need to be willing to throw everything you have at it except that the day that you retaliate, you've probably failed to solve the problem that you originally set out to solve, if that makes sense. I mean, you don't, you don't threaten, as you know, to retaliate if you're not willing to do it. I mean, you don't bluff with something you're not willing to do. But the day you actually are forced to, you get to that point where you have to retaliate, it means you haven't solved the original problem in the first place. So that's a, a fundamental, so that's a, a resource allocation issue. But I, I personally have always been inclined to throw a lot of resources at the export side of the enforcement equation. On the import side, you've got, so the export side meaning really working the agreements. If you got market access, whether it was through a bilateral deal or a multilateral deal, then by God, you got that market access, you need to enforce it, and you need to show the American people that trade agreements are credible. Um, and sometimes there's a cost associated with that. On the import side, um, we have a history where when agencies didn't enforce agreements, the authority to enforce them got taken away. Uh, so once upon a time, the Treasury Department was responsible for the anti-dumping and countervailing duty laws that the Commerce Department now has responsibility for. And that responsibility in, uh, was taken away from the Treasury Department because the Treasury Department didn't believe in anti-dumping or countervailing duties. Uh, and the law was discretionary, and therefore Congress took, them away, took that authority away, gave it to the Commerce Department, and then removed the discretion. I think discretion is a good thing, and I think the discretion ought to be used. I, I think it is a bad thing when you remove discretion, uh, but discretion gets removed when you do not exercise it, um, and I think it needs to be exercised. So I think, I don't know, that probably does not answer your question, but it's that kind of balance. I think credit, the fundamental credibility um, is, is very important. I think taking Section 301 
301 doesn't necessarily have to create a trade war. Uh, it's to your point about about allocating resources where they're important. Your point about NAFTA, yeah, right. for example, I thought the Canadian uh, Prime Minister's reaction the other day about, you want to renegotiate NAFTA? Sure, I got a lot of stuff that, that we want right, to exactly. do. NAFTA is an ancient trade agreement in the world of trade agreements. It's hopelessly out of date. And it's not to say it was a bad agreement. It's a good agreement. But it is hopelessly out of date, so have at it. And I thought that was a very, very clever response because, sure, we all have things we'd like to do. I mean, anyway, so it's, let's, let's allocate resources to, to updating agreements and to enforcing agreements. Well, on enforceability, I do have to tell you one story. It's a great story. <clears throat> Many of you room, in the room at least know of and may know Bob Rubin who may be as much of a liberal trader as anyone you can imagine. Well, we were trying to negotiate an auto agreement with Japan back in 1994 and 95, and we were in the Roosevelt Room, and everyone, including the president, was getting increasingly frustrated that Japan would not move in ways that we thought were reasonable and rational. Uh, and so Bob Ruman suggested the following, which is one of the best enforcement mechanisms I ever heard of. He says, look, Every one of those cars from Japan come through the port of L.A. and Long Beach. And what we do is they come in, they come off the ship, we slap a sticker on them, and they're sent to where the auto dealer they go to. No one, no one inspects them, no one does it. He says, let's start, we drive them one by one to Bakersfield, California. And we inspect each one, one by one. Then we drive each one back to the port of Long Beach or L.A. He says, within about a week, we'll have your auto agreement. Well, he was probably correct. We would have had an auto agreement. I'm not so sure what the aftermath would have been of that, but it's one of the more clever uses of enforceability I've heard I, of. It. I, would, I, would, I would offer two points on that. One is the French did that first in Poitiers in the early 1980s, right? 81, 82, thereabouts. Okay, um, and the one thing that we always need to remember is that for every cute thing we come up with, some other trading partner is going to come up with a nastier version of it and use By it the way, against we didn't our do it. exports. By the way, we didn't. Do yes, it. Yeah, right. <laughs> exactly. But some. But but I agree. But 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 we just need to keep that in mind. Sometimes we talk about things, right. and then they do it. Yeah, right. I would just uh, observe that I, I spent 10 years at the U.S. International Trade Commission very much involved on enforcing on the import side. And part of the theory of that is, well, you need to enforce these agreements well in order to build support for liberalization. I found no empirical evidence that enforcing the import rules created uh, uh, a momentum for liberalization. What I did see is that bit by bit, we have enforced those import rules to the point where we now are imposing really significant costs on the U.S. manufacturing economy because somewhat more than half of all imports come in as inputs to be further manufactured in the United That's States. That That's true. where the subtle pressures come. If you are sitting in front of a congressional committee and you're USTR mm -hmm. and a member from Ohio says... 
why aren't you enforcing, let me, this situation, whatever it happens to be, and you need that vote or you don't want to have that member on the Ways and Means Committee, let's say, come out, come out and do something you don't want, then you want to enforce. Now, it may economically not make any sense, but politically, that's where the clash comes sometimes. Politically, it may, may make every sense in the world that you enforce certain, uh, let's say, certain aspects of an agreement that you were reluctant to do it at, at, a, at a certain point. Mm -hmm. Other comments? Okay, well then, I. I will have, I have an opening question and then before we uh, turn it to the, to the audience. You, you mentioned the, pro, the challenge of communicating with Democratic congressmen regarding the benefits of trade. My impression is that many of them are very good and bright people, but they are under pressure from at least two sources, one being from organized labor and the other being from left-leaning organizations that uh, they might have good intentions, but they don't understand the value of having a growing global economy, okay? So is there some way that either of those pressures can be dealt with in order to give more latitude to a dem Democratic congressman who might, might want to vote in favor of trade? One, you need counter pressures, uh, which we have little of in, at least um, for, in, on the Democratic side. Uh, yes, organized labor and... and uh, 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 is is very adamant, uh, and 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 certainly other organizations which are my side of the political spectrum, right, uh, ideological spectrum, are opposed to trade agreements. Most of their data and most of their uh, uh, foundation for their arguments is just not correct, literally not correct. Yeah. But there are very few on, let's say, the side of rules-based open trade, who are on the other side of the table arguing with them at the point in time. It makes it very difficult. You just don't have that kind of counter-argument, counter-pressure going on. There have been times, by the way, when the business community, by the way, writ large, NAFTA, for instance, done a, did a marvelous job in NAFTA. We couldn't have done NAFTA without the business community in 1993. It would not have passed. just would not have passed. Uh, and... Those 104 Democrats who voted for it did listen because it was a counter-pressure to labor and a counterweight. In most cases, I think, Sue, that may be your experience, at least on the Democratic side, there were no counter-pressures. Now, let me say something about polls. The polls show every time, not just young Americans, but Americans are in favor of trade agreements and trades all the time, 62%, 65%, 68%. It's, it's a myth that Americans are opposed to trade and trade agreements. Now, if you mention the word NAFTA, which I think is, in, is, is responsible for the common cold, if you mention NAFTA, then of course people go crazy. They, they think something has gone nuts here. I, I, we have got to begin to educate, I use that word carefully, those folks who are trying to interpret what these issues are. And that starts with, I'm telling journalists know less and I'm not criticizing. My wife was a NBC news journalist for 14 years uh, with NBC uh, uh, Network. They just, it's not a subject because of what you said, Sue, so well. Uh, people aren't interested in it, so they don't know it. They don't understand it. And they have nothing to counter. When they interview someone on trade, 
it always, I'm sure maybe all of you have this, I want to jump through that television set. I get so <laughs> frustrated because they don't know what the follow-up question is. They have no idea. Well, the same has to do with members of Congress, I'm afraid, and has to do, frankly, with, with organized labor whose future, future is dependent upon increased and enhanced trade. It, that's their future. That's and it's amazing to me. They still are in the same position they were in, who knows, 40 years ago, whatever it happens to be. So there has to be counter pressures. We've got to develop it, and only education will do it. Just a brief follow-up. To what extent do parts of organized labor realize that they're arguing against their own interest when they are wanting to, to restrict trade? I mean, because we have some but unions in very competitive industries. I'll give you a industries. great analogous story. I'm sorry to tell stories, but I think sometimes they illustrate the point better than anything. <clears throat> During the NAFTA uh, uh, fight, uh, in the fall of 1993, Bill Clinton literally every other day would have people in the Roosevelt Room or the Cabinet Room, members of Congress, and would argue with them, especially Democrats, about voting for NAFTA. He became really angry when, as he was wont to do sometimes, uh, with four Democrats who we were sitting in the Roosevelt Room. And he said, well, let me ask you four a question. If there were, this were a secret ballot in Congress, how would you vote and how would your colleagues vote? Oh, they said, oh, 400 votes for NAFTA. He took his briefing book and slammed it down and walked out, walked out, because he was frustrated, as all of us come sometimes, that it's so obvious what the answer was, but the politics of it were not, not on the side of, uh, of right and, and truth. And that, if I could add, and I know we need to, to open up, but that is generally the most frustrating thing that you get when you go up to the Hill and you're working on a trade agreement and you're trying to get votes for a trade agreement. Democrats and Republicans, both, you get, we know you're right, but politically I can't do this. I mean, it, it is that is generally... The no votes, that's what you're getting. Mm -hmm. And so the question is, how do you fix that? Um, okay. Well, thank you very much. We, we have allowed half an hour now for questions from the audience. So I would, I would ask, I, I will recognize the questioners. Please identify yourself and, and uh, wait for the microphone first, because we are being live streamed, and we do want all the comments to be picked up. Okay, so who's, who's first? I'm going to recognize Dan Eikenson, the director of the Herbert A. Stiefel Center for Trade Policy Studies. Always a wise move, okay. Thanks, excellent presentations. Thank you both very much. Just to continue along this thread, um, in, in the summer of 2015, we had the Trade Promotion Authority legislation, which was passed with the help of 28 Democrats. Uh, the AFL-CIO funded challenges to those 28 uh, representatives. None of the challengers received more than 20% of the popular vote in the, in the primary. So do you think that that suggests that maybe a change is, is in store? What, does, that, what is that, does that foreshadow anything for maybe the stranglehold that the AFL-CIO may have had over some of these votes on trade to dissipate? Uh, I, I'll let so you jump in. I, I don't think the stranglehold, I don't, I don't think the labor nor business 
with Republicans have strangleholds over members of Congress. Uh, I guess I had a different experience, and, and the two of you probably have more experience than I with this watching literally members of Congress who come in, came in against NAFTA being persuaded to vote for it, and members of Congress being against the Uruguay Round being persuaded to vote for it and not to oppose it. Uh, uh, maybe it was a different time, and I will admit that. But I, I don't think that it's just the political pressures labor can bring to bear. For instance, we're using labor as a, as a, as a whipping post here, but it's probably not totally fair, <clears throat> that does it. I think it's also the, the, the inability for us to communicate largely to a member's constituents the benefits of, of trade. I'll tell another story. When I was USTR, we were trying to get NAFTA passed. I was in the great state of Texas. I was in Plano, Texas. And at a, at a, uh, uh, a factory that made base stations uh, for then the growing uh, uh, internet that was being. And, the, and I was talking to some workers out on a dock, and there were maybe 14 of these huge base stations were going to be shipped. And so they were telling me how much they were opposed to NAFTA, what a terrible thing it was. It was going to cost them all jobs and so on. And I said, that's interesting. I said, is it just international trade? They said, oh, yeah, international trade. That is. And I said, well, where are these base stations going? Every one were being shipped outside the United States of America. Base stations these workers had just built. So there was no connection, they say, between what they did and what was being done in international trade agreements. I found that to be a failure of people like me. We weren't communicating. We weren't letting people know exactly how their lives were tied to globalization, uh, and, and they were joined at the hip with the rest of the world. Okay. Another question? In the back, uh, next to the aisle, up at the, yes. Hi, I'm Andrew Reamer. I'm a public policy professor at George Washington University, focusing on uh, federal policies to support uh, the ability of U.S. establishments to compete in the, compete in the global economy. Um, I'm also a member of the Bureau of Economic Analysis Advisory Committee. The, the uh, trade statistics are a, a key ingredient in the design of trade policy. The trade statistics have a weakness in that we only see gross flows. So in the last five years, there's been a consensus built across the UN, OECD, uh, with uh, China and, uh, and, and the US to produce uh, trade in value added statistics, or TIVA. And the idea is that we can see, with trade statistics, how much value each country is adding to a particular good or service. And so we, can, we would be able to see global supply chains in a way that we can't now. Um, so there is, uh, the Bureau of Economic Analysis is slowly moving to implement this, but um, there's a worldwide consensus. My question, and it can go slower, it can go fast. My question for you is, what would be the value of TIVA statistics if they were good to uh, both the design of trade policy, but also to the point you're making about politics? Could they be used to inform people more clearly about the benefits of trade? 
And so I will add one more thing. The US International Trade Commission, uh, Bill Powers, if you know Bill Powers, uh, is they have a contract out with the researcher to see if they can develop trade and value added statistics by metro area. So you could look at what, if, what value does trade provide to the Chicago economy? It's a, you ask a really good question and your timing is perfect because um, I see Bill Reinch out there. He and, he and, he and I are, are co-teaching a class on trade policy at, at the University of Maryland and this week we're doing global supply chains. Uh, the, the supply chains, global value chains, uh, great issue, really hard to explain and unfortunately, as you know, really hard to calculate in any, in any um, massive detail. So you have to take a, you know, a product and then go through every single step and every single, every single step along the chain for this particular product. So the good news about it is it makes for great anecdotal evidence, which helps with the narrative. So for example, uh, the, the, the best known example, the iPod, iPad, uh, iPhone studies that are out there uh, that are used by, I think, a lot of people who teach trade policy uh, that point out that, you know, a, a $150 product that comes in the United States that, that we put a, 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 that we value as, a, as an import from China worth $150 shows up on the books as a $150 import from China actually has, I don't know, $4.99 of China content, and the rest is Taiwan, uh, Taiwan, South Korea, um, India, US. Anyway, you've got all sorts of, you got content from all different places, and this, this, you've got this elaborate value chain. Unfortunately, you're never going to be able, and, and the China, you know, if you use the value chain uh, 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 approach, the bilateral trade deficit that the U.S. has with China is, what, 25% lower than uh, the, the nominal numbers that we use. That said, the overall U.S. trade deficit is the same. It just is different. The bilateral deficits are different with different countries. I think the, the value of that, I think it's very valuable in that it tells us about what, how companies do business, how manufacturing works in today's world. Uh, it draws attention to this issue of intermediate Im, uh, imports, which, you, which most Americans don't understand, uh, that a lot of people who are involved in manufacturing in the United States don't realize that their jobs depend on imports not just exports, uh, and that you can really shoot yourself in the foot if you come up with a lousy trade policy or make bad trade decisions, including in drawing up retaliation lists. Uh, but I think, uh, one, it, the, the broader data is instructive, and the anecdotes are useful in the narrative. But beyond that, I'm not sure what kind of fundamental value uh, this will have, because you're never going to be able to, to have to define all your trade balances uh, using this methodology, it seems to me. Anyway. Allow me to recognize Mr. Levinson in the front row there. <clears throat> thank you, Dan. Uh, thank you, Ambassador Schwab, Ambassador Cantor. Ken Levinson with the Washington International Trade Association. 
Um, we were talking uh, about uh, TPP and, and the rules-based system. Is, uh, if you were advising the Japanese government, they exposed themselves a lot in signing up for the TPP. They put a lot of eggs, I don't know if they import a lot of eggs, but they put a lot of eggs in that basket um, for the TPP. Their, the lower house of their diet just passed TPP last week after the election. Um, it was written up as a symbolic gesture, but I'm wondering if maybe it wasn't, if there's a scenario where the other 11 TPP countries could try to renegotiate a TPP without the U.S., lose that 85% threshold, or are we facing an RCEP world? And is that is China going to be writing the rules in the absence of a TPP? I, I think we're all guessing at this point, right? I... I, I I don't hesitate to guess because I'm not in government, so what? I can go ahead and guess, and what difference does it make? Uh, my guess is that Prime Minister Abe has his own tactics and strategy here. I think he believes, rightly or wrongly, he might be able to push, cajole, persuade uh, the president-elect and a new administration to reconsider TPP, maybe reconfigured in certain ways, uh, as you know, as you suggested and said so well, Prime Minister Abe put a lot on the line politically to get that through the diet. And now he's in a position either fighting for it or being somewhat embarrassed. And so I think he, like other leaders of countries in this agreement, will come to that same conclusion that rather than give up and walk away, to do the opposite, to push and shove and see if they can't get some, uh, uh, create some flexibility in a new administration on TPP. I hope they can. I am, I don't know what to expect. Sue, you and Dan would know a lot more about this. I don't know what to expect. I am, we all are afraid of the unknown. And this is unknown to me, maybe to everyone. So I think we'll have to wait and see who's appointed, who's going to head the National Economic Council, who is going to be USTR, who is going to be Secretary of Commerce, who's going to be Secretary of the Treasury, what kind of influence will be on the president-elect. But I think Prime Minister Abe believes he can, rightly or wrongly, can push the new president in certain ways that might, uh, might lead to some flexibility. Yeah, I, I would say uh, it really is too, it's too early really too early to tell. I think we're in for a period of uncertainty. Uh, no question about that. Um, uh, if you're, uh, I, I don't envy the folks who are going to the APEX summit in Peru later this week. Um, America's not gonna look great again at the APEX summit in Peru uh, because of TPP. And you can bet that, that the, the countries that don't wish us well uh, are going to paint the current situation in the worst possible light. Uh, this too will pass though, and there's a lot in TPP that is absolutely consistent with positions taken by the president-elect uh, and his surrogates during the campaign, um, having to do with enforcement, having to do with state-owned enterprises, having to do with a variety of things. So having to do with updating and, and renegotiating NAFTA, quite frankly. So there are a lot of things in TPP that are, that are fully consistent. Um, uh, is this an RCEP world? Um, I have no idea. RCEP is a, it's a goods-only agreement. 
Um, if you really are serious about stepping up and, and doing a serious WTO plus deal, uh, it's not RCEP. Uh, but but um, you know if you're if you're an economist, you you want to see trade liberalization move ahead. I would rather not see a, a Asian infrastructure bank scenario play out. Uh, in trade, and one of the reasons that we launched TPP in the Bush administration was there was something called ASEAN Plus Six that was being negotiated, which just so happens to have exactly the same players as RCEP, um, because we didn't want to be locked out of that. But but there'll be a new you know there'll be a new team on the field, and and they're going to have to decide what their trade agenda is, what their priorities are, and um, uh, you know, the only group that that has that has a bigger stake in an open trading system and a fair trading system than the U.S. is China. So China is going to have to be be uh, careful about this exercise as well. Um, and maybe meeting at the multilateral, you know, at the multilateral uh, table is is uh, the one that that will ultimately uh, make the difference in terms of of the Japanese and Prime Minister Abe's decision, uh, that could end up turning out to be a very smart decision. You never know. But I will tell you from my experience, you never f actually finish negotiating a trade agreement until it's implemented. I mean, you just, there are pieces that end up being opened and reopened. Uh, and so it's not over till it's over. Mm -hmm. okay. With respect to TPP, let me just comment that the Cato Institute uh, did uh, a knock-down, drag-out analysis chapter by chapter of the 30 chapters. We had great fun as a group um, uh, heaping criticism on certain sections. We provided praise elsewhere. At the end of the day, our assessment was that warts and all, the TPP is worth enacting, and, and I would hope that that becomes possible in the months ahead. Mr. Palmer. Hi, uh, Doug Palmer with Politico. Um, Ambassador Cantor, I realize you said this is not the time to criticize the incoming administration. But during the campaign, he was critical of past trade agreements and said they were all negotiated by political hacks. <laughs> I, think, I think I was the idiot he talked about. <laughs> Could, uh, yeah, I, I don't know. I wouldn't want to say, but um, <laughs> um, it's okay. Go right ahead. I'm sensitive. <laughs> um, but no, I, I, I guess I was just curious. Um, uh, in, in light of that, I, I, what do you think is going to be the reaction of the career staff at, at USTR to this sort of about face in terms of um, their negotiating mandate? And also, uh, and this is for Ambassador Schwab as, as well, um, what do you think of this proposal that they've talked about on the campaign trail of taking USTR and all the other export-related agencies and consolidate, consolidating them Si? excuse me, consolidating them inside the Commerce Department. Um, do you think that that is something that Congress is going to go along with? Well. Why don't you go, you want to start with that one? Uh, yeah, I want to start with that one. The answer is Congress won't go for that, and for good reason. Let me just say one overall arching. The Secretary of Commerce has an enormous job trying to, to uh, manage or at least lead very disparate, Item including NOAA, 
uh, National or, uh, uh, Atmospheric Administration, uh, the, you know, uh, and everything from, from, from import and export to responsibilities uh, has enormous duties. Can you imagine then saying the Secretary of Commerce, you're now negotiating trade agreements? Because let me tell you, whoever the USTR is will be reporting to a Secretary of Commerce and the person across the negotiating table from wherever is going to say, no, no, I don't want to negotiate with you. I want to negotiate with the secretary because that's the person you report to. And so you're going to have a secretary of commerce either not taking care of his or her other duties or, or uh, uh, spending no time on trying to learn how to negotiate a trade agreement that might be important. It, it just doesn't work. USTR is separate for a reason. Trade agreements are, are, are maybe overcomplicated, but they're complicated. There's a terrific staff there whom I admire, and I'm sure Sue and I would agree on that wholeheartedly. Uh, let me go then to your first part. It's a terrific professional staff. They are non-political. They actually do their job in the most professional way. In my, first, in my four years at USTR, I, we negotiated I'll say we, they, they got 200 trade agreements in four years. That's a lot of trade agreements. Only because they were professional and they did it well, they did it as perfectly as you can. As I said, not perfect and need to be updated now. But the fact is, I think they will do their jobs. They will try to influence, I think, the new USTR uh, to go in the direction of, if you want to call it trade liberalization or my vernacular rules-based trade, I hope they're successful, but if they're not, what worries me, really worries me to be candid, is a lot of the very good people there with such great experience who've been so successful will find other employment. And I, I would hate to see that happen. I, I will, uh, on both of your points, first of all, the only piece of gratuitous advice I have offered the transition team is to look after the career staff at USTR. Uh, they are, I don't know if they're Republicans or Democrats, but I can tell you they can out-negotiate anyone in any government anywhere in the world. Uh, they are probably the best bang for the buck for the U.S. taxpayer of any government agency. They are, it is a tiny agency, as you know, and would be swallowed up in the Commerce Department or anywhere else. Mickey and I are we probably the only former USTRs who have both worked in commerce and at USTR? I mean, Mickey was obviously Secretary of Commerce. I ran a fairly sizable agency within the Commerce Department. I loved my time at the Commerce Department. I would not have wanted to have USTR within the Commerce Department. Uh, the USTR was taken at, USTR was created when it was taken out of the State Department because the State Department put too much weight on the foreign policy side of U.S. trade policy. If you put USTR in the Commerce Department, even if you could, and I'll come back to whether you could or not, but you wouldn't want to, because then either the Commerce Department would have to stop being proactive on behalf of U.S. industry uh, interests, or it would just be proactive on behalf of U.S. industry interests to the exclusion 
of the rest of the economy, mm -hmm. meaning to the exclusion of agriculture or labor or various services represented by other agencies. And there's a reason why it's sitting in the executive office of the president, because it needs to draw on and be informed by all of these different interests in the US economy, because US trade interests are broader than just um, manufacturing, broader than just agriculture, broader than just foreign policy. It's this, it's domestic politics, it's international, you know, it's foreign policy, it's domestic economics, and it's international economic policy, and it all comes together in this sort of brokering role. USTR needs to be kept really small so that it doesn't think it can do everything itself, and it has to draw on the expertise of these other agencies. That's really important. Um, and then you need this small layer of political appointees uh, that help to buffer, translate, uh, work the Hill, work the White House, that work with this career staff that are the institutional memory because trade policy, trade negotiations, you've got the sublime and the ridiculous. I mean, when you're negotiating a trade agreement, you've got some really narrow issues that require a lot of history. But um, finally, uh, any administration that is foolish enough to waste political capital on trade reorganization, uh, you know, ask the Obama administration, they had some really good ideas in terms of reorganizing trade functions, and then they stuck in move USTR over to commerce, and the entire plan fell apart. Ask the Reagan administration. They tried the same thing. It didn't work. So it is a colossal waste of political capital in addition to being a rather foolish idea in terms of policy. Uh, Sue, just review the numbers. I don't feel strongly about it at all. Yeah. <laughs> USTR. Really think. <laughs> well, I've, I've worked at state. I've worked at treasury. I've worked at commerce. I've worked at USTR. And I've worked on the Hill. And I, I can tell you it just... There's a reason that, that this particular exercise is structured the way it is. Sue, so, so just review the numbers quickly. USTR has somewhere around 280. 230, 230. I don't know. When I left, it was about 230. Okay, and, and the number of political. When I was there, it was 111. Really? Yeah. And the number of political appointees is four or five? About 10%. Oh. I had, I had, uh, I had not 10 political appoint, appointees. Yeah, so it's about, ten, it's about yeah, 10%, yeah, yeah. give or take five. Question. Gentleman over here in the second row, hiding behind the lectern. Uh, Henry Hatker, retired federal government. Um, recently, within the last year or so, we learned that Smithfield Hams had been approved for foreign purchase to China. Uh, it was very questionable, uh, a lot of concern from many people, uh, as been the case with so many other companies. Uh, the question arose, should China be told they can order Smithfield hams, as many as they want, as many as can be permitted to be sold to a foreign government, or should they be permitted to buy such companies that do all this production? Uh, years ago, under President Nixon, China indicated that there would have to be equal trade it wouldn't just be a question of uh, America selling a great number of products to China. Uh, it would have to be equal. And as it turned out, it's sort of the other way around, but people here haven't been complaining. 
but is it good for our economy? Would you please comment on this issue to some extent? Thank you. Lou, I, I, I guess from the tone of your question, I think you, uh, you I don't know which way you're going, but I'm for foreign investment in the United States. I think it's a good thing. And I think the more capital we can attract to the United States uh, on a reasonable basis. Now, uh, would I want to sell a, a, a high technology industry uh, or company involved in defense production, working with the CIA and DIA and so on to a state-owned Chinese company? No, no, I would not be for that. But Smithville Ham, if they want to give the shareholders Smithville Ham a, a large bonus for selling that company and they'll bring foreign investment in the United States, you're welcome to it. They're, they're all over Hollywood today, as you probably know. Uh, uh, is it the Wanda Group? I'm trying to think of the name of the group. The Wanda Group. Uh, uh, I think we get into, go down a slippery slope when we start saying, no, 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 certain countries don't want to invest in the United States of America. We want others to invest in the United States, and certain things we don't want them to do. I think we have to be in the defense, security, uh, intelligence area. I think you have to be careful. I, I couldn't agree with that more. Other than that, uh, if they want to buy, uh, you know, the the uh, uh, the uh, San Diego uh, uh, San Diego Padres, uh, you know, and move them to Los Angeles as well, I'm all for it. Uh, you know, I, I just don't think it's a, a wise thing to do to begin to make those kind of decisions. Nor would I want China to begin to make decisions or make decisions more than they do about what U.S. interests can buy in China or can put into China. That to me, that slippery slope is one I don't want to go down. And I, I would just say that I, actually I, I was rather pleased that the Chinese decided to buy a company like Smithfield for, for two reasons. One is that they are the world's largest producer of, of pork and they have uh, less perfect processing methods than in the United States. And so I think that food safety in China may improve because of this purchase. And the second uh, point is that um, China is at times inclined to use sanitary and phytosanitary restrictions to keep out U.S. agricultural products. If they have a Chinese company importing pork, those issues are likely to be less prominent. So I think that U.S. farmers are likely to do better with the Chinese having that foothold in Smithfield than would be otherwise be the case. Okay, we, uh, what do we got time here? We, we have probably just one well, I'm going to do two. I'm going to do one back there if it's quick, and then I'm going to recognize John Francois. Way in the way in the back there. Thank you, Lloyd Hand, King and Spaulding. <clears throat> um, some of you are probably familiar with them. several cases last year. This is apropos of China, where U.S. companies um, sought to bring infringement uh, before the ITC. Or Chinese companies. The Chinese government determined that just bringing an action before the ITC was a per se violation of their antitrust policy. And when that company, or the one that I was aware of, but there are several, was seeking some advice within our own government, they were told that they were being confronted with what basically uh, we have come to know as China Inc where if a particular major Chinese company was, was being threatened in that manner, i.e. the ITC action, that 
they would invoke all the agencies of government and including their court against them. In this process, the vice president and the president raised that at the highest levels to no avail. The reason I raise this is it illustrates essentially a lack of leverage. We have the strategic dialogue, et cetera, et cetera other forum, but basically, if the Chinese decide to take over a particular market or try to become dominant, it doesn't appear that any of the current mechanisms afford appropriate relief for the U.S. companies. And if U.S. companies appear to, let's say, mm -hmm. propose legislation, then they're subject to retaliation by the Chinese. You, did you have a question, sir? That's it. What do you... What do you suggest as a policy prescription to deal with that issue? Thank you. Um, I would I would say that that um, trade relations with China are complicated. Uh, I think the U.S. and China have some mutual interests, as I uh, alluded to earlier, in an open world trading system and enforcement of rules. Things we can be working on together, particularly at the WTO. But I also think that uh, the U.S. has tools, and um, China has a lot at stake in this market. Uh, we're also interested in, in um, we've got, uh, we benefit a lot from exporting to China. We benefit from imports from China. Uh, but we also have tools to make sure that agreements are enforced, and I think we can use them. So... I think it's. I think we've got more leverage than you give us credit for, uh, and China has leverage too. And we just need to keep remembering that they're going to do the best for their side, and we're going to do the best for our side. And sometimes our interests coincide, and sometimes they don't. Any Let me, I want to add just one thing to that. That goes back at least to one point I tried to make. We have got to engage China and make their interests, at least when we can, compatible, compatible with ours, then you have leverage. If you do, are not engaged, if you don't have the same interests, therefore it's very difficult, as you suggest, very difficult to find levers in order to have, uh, have, those, uh, have another country behave in a way you would want them to behave. And so my view is, rather than surround China, rather than isolate or attempt to isolate, which is impossible, China, to bring them in, like into something like TPP, in order to have the leverage you're, you're at least referring to. Of course, the leverage is less now because you have less relations. Now, Sue is right. We have leverage. We can use and we should. By the way, we've brought in the last three and a half years, three or four years, probably 23 cases at the WTO, most of which against China, 16 have been won or settled favorably, seven are pending. The U.S. has used their leverage quite well, by the way, in the WTO. Okay, and with apologies to Jean-Francois, uh, who you know, come up and visit afterwards, but I had made a firm commitment to Ambassador Schwab that we were going to cut this off at 12.30, which means I'm now about three minutes into hot water, and, <laughs> and I, I want her perhaps to, to come and speak to us again, so I, I don't want to push this. So. Um, Let's see. Lunch is upstairs on the second floor. Please come up and join us and continue the conversation there. Uh, please join me in thanking the ambassadors. <laughs>